Good morning, um, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. When I first, I first visited Shanghai 30 years ago, um, and at the time I was a uh, global shipping economist uh, for Chase Manhattan Bank, which I think then could claim to be the biggest ship financier in the world. Uh, 30 years later, it's a particular honor and a pleasure to be here in Shanghai, which I think can now claim to be, as Madame Dong explained to us, the leading center of ship finance. And I feel very much the vibrations as I come here of a truly vibrant shipping finance community. Uh, however, being a leader and being um, a provider of finance brings a special responsibility. The, one of the lessons I learnt in my time as a shipping banker was that ship owners listen and pay much more attention to their bankers than they do to most other people. Maybe cargo. If you've got a lot of cargo, then you get their attention. But they have respect for, ship, for, for, for their bankers and look to their bankers, I believe, for leadership and guidance. And um, Mr. G spoke about the responsibilities that lie ahead in the areas of the environment and uh, such other issues. And what I would like to do this morning is to talk to you um, not just about the markets, though of course I will talk about the market, but to talk to you about an issue which is very much on my mind at the moment, which is how the shipping industry can meet the, the challenge of carbon efficiency. And so these are the topics I want to, to discuss with you this morning. First of all, I will take a look at the shipping markets, which I, I don't think it's any secret that, that the market is today still struggling. It's a tough time. Um, the good news is that the fundamentals which we follow um, are looking better, as um, Mr. G mentioned. And I think that um, we can take some heart from that. And I'll give you a few figures about that to talk about. But then I want to move on to an issue which I feel, as I travel around the world, and I make many visits and speak to many ship owners in, in, in each year, and I feel that the whole issue of carbon and emissions in the industry has reached a new level. And indeed, I feel as we approach 2020, with all the painful discussion over sulfur emission uh, regulations, which the industry has had to cope with recently, that there is a lesson here that we must not just leave it to the regulators as an industry. We must, as an industry, address the issues and become involved in implementing the, the changes which are needed to meet these requirements which society is placing on us. And so what I want to do in the third part of my talk is to address strategies for reducing carbon emissions in shipping and look in particular at the cargo uh, aspect of the business, the way we should have to change the way we use ships in future, and most importantly, the way shipbuilding will, will need to adapt. And since China is, by a very large margin now, the world's biggest shipbuilder, I think our uh, figures that we 
compiled at Clarkson Research shows that China's market share of deliveries last year was um, about 30, over 30% greater than any other shipbuilding nation, um, then this puts a, a special role for, for China in this. And, uh, of course, finally, the digital revolution is on everybody's mind today, and shipping companies have, in the digital revolution, a terrific potential asset, a new tool to use in order to make a better world for maritime transport in the future. And where better to address these topics than here in Shanghai, the heart of global maritime business. Um, let me start with the, um, the shipping market. And the, uh, I've mentioned that I think the market is struggling today. This, is, this index is the, the Clark Sea Index, and it covers all the main segments, tankers, bulk carriers, container ships, and gas. And you can see that we have just been through 10 years of very difficult freight rates. Um, uh, an average of about $12,000 a day on this index barely pays a return on capital. And as you see, there have been a number of years when the return has been less than $10,000 a day, and ship owners have not been covering their depreciation. Uh, this is not the, the first time we've been in this situation. Uh, in fact, we were in a very similar situation in the 1990s, and uh, the most depressing part, the worst part of the 1990s, was in 1999, um, and uh, that was the point at which we were getting ready to move into the great superboom of the 2000s. And I think that you can see the similarity between the two positions. Now, I, I have to say that I'm not, I am definitely not predicting another boom quite like the 2000s, but nevertheless, I think that um, as um, Mr. G mentioned, uh, we, we can look to the future with a little bit of hope that things will uh, improve. Uh, uh, just to remind you that um, uh, not all market segments are in the same place. We have experts from all the main segments here today, and I bow to their much closer knowledge of these businesses than I have. But uh, just as a reminder, um, tankers, gas, offshore, chemicals are all well below the seven-year earnings average. Um, bulk carriers and container ships, strangely enough, are ahead of the game at the moment. Um, I think this says more about the very miserable average of the last seven years than the very good rates today. But I, it does give you a sense that th things are improving a little bit there. Uh, but, uh, but let me move on to the fundamentals. Uh, and um, the first, you know, shipping last year moved 12 billion tons of cargo. This is um, nearly two tons for every man, woman, and child in, on the face of the earth. It is the world's, arguably, one of the world's most important industries. And um, I, I think that you can see quite clearly from this chart that the growth continues. Um, it's the last 10 years since the credit crisis have seen continuous growth. But in fact, the last three or four years, the growth has been a little bit slower than it was previously. Um, this is clearer from this chart, which shows you the year-by-year -year growth of world seaborne trade uh, over a very long period. 
And you'll, if, if you look at the, the, the right-hand side of the chart, you can see that over the last five years, the growth rate has been about 2% per annum, maybe 2.2% or a little bit more um, per annum. We're looking at 2.8% this year. It's not fast growth, but it is positive growth, and that's important. So I'd ask you to hold that 2.8% in your mind. Remember that. And we now move on to the shipbuilding side. And, and you can see that um, shipbuilding has been through two very big cycles during my lifetime in shipping. Um, the first was in the 1970s, and the second peaked in 2011 when the world shipbuilders delivered 102 million gross tons, 160 million deadweight tons. And that, I think, was far more ships than the, the, the shipping industry could absorb at the time. And that was what set us up for this long period of rather depressed freight rates. And um, I, I think the encouraging thing from the point of view of ship owners, though not from the point of view of shipper builders, I'm sorry to say, um, is that the uh, production of ships last year had fallen to a little over 60 million tonnes. And this year... We're, in 2019, we're predicting deliveries of 52 million gross tons, which is exactly half the level of 2011. And um, those numbers in themselves might be difficult to see. You say, well, what does that mean for the shipping industry? Well, to, to show you this, um, if we have a look at a chart showing you the growth of the world fleet... Um, and just to explain this chart, the bars show the world merchant fleet in million deadweight tons on the left-hand axis of the chart. And on the right, the red line shows the percentage growth rate of the fleet. And you will see that in um, 2019, we expect the fleet to grow by about 2.2%. And in 2019, and 19 and 20, we expect it to grow by approximately 1.8%. And so that, if you remember that the growth rate of trade is currently about 2%, it does mean that for the first time for a good many years, the growth of trade is faster than the growth of the fleet. And that is moving us into a more positive area um, unfortunately, we still are carrying some surplus capacity, or at least what we economists refer to as surplus. Um, in, in this case, you can see um, the supply of ships is shown by the, the red line on this chart, and the demand is shown by the blue line. And you can see that as a result of the very high production during the great boom, um, the supply drew ahead of the demand, and we've got about 20% surplus capacity today. But we are in a very new position in the, in the shipping industry today, because that is not truly surplus capacity. These are not laid-up ships. These are ships which are trading at slow steaming speeds. And that takes me into our, the main topic I want to discuss with you this morning, which is the whole question of the 
carbon footprint of the shipping industry because, um, uh, and because slow steaming is no longer a bad thing for the industry. In fact, we are, as economists, we are starting to believe that trading ships more slowly is one of the best things you can do. And so we are in a, we're in a strange position today. But let me, let me leave that thought with you and move on um, to the next part of my talk, which is strategies for reducing carbon emissions. I don't know how you feel in the audience about this, but I sense as I travel around the world that this has moved very, very highly onto the agenda. Just last Friday, uh, the United Nations issued a report uh, suggesting that by 2050, a million species could be eliminated from the planet. And I downloaded the summary of this report off the internet, and it's 40 pages of detailed analysis. And I think um, if, if you have children or grandchildren, and, or if you're just young and have a life ahead of you, you know, <laughs> Um, we have to think very hard about this. It's not something that we can ignore. And so, for the rest of my time, I'd like to talk to you about this. The IMO um, reached, a, a, I think, a, a very momentous decision last April that the industry should, the shipping industry, should halve its carbon emissions by 2050 relative to 2008. And, in fact, it went much further than that, and it said, ideally, we should be thinking about totally eliminating carbon emissions from the industry. And the reason I chose this as my topic here today is that this is the heart, this is where the real pulse of shipping is today, and if anybody is going to take a lead in this, I would hope that it would be here in Shanghai, in the centre of the world's biggest shipbuilding industry today, and also in this, the emerging centre of finance for maritime transport. And um, what um, I just want to remind you of the scale of the challenge ahead of us. If you go back to 1840, we carried about uh, 20 million tonnes of cargo by sea, and that was carried by uh, a fleet of approximately... 30,000 sailing ships carried 20 million tons of cargo. If we look at where we are today, we carry 12 billion tons of cargo with a fleet of 60,000 ships. And how, how have we done that? It may be we've done that because we are very clever people. It may be because we're very clever. But really, the reason we've been able to do that is that this is the world's biggest maritime engine, the M engine of the, the Emma Maersk. It is 109,000 horsepower. Now, if you're not a technical person, it's hard to know what a megawatt is, but let me tell you what it is. If you put people to work to do the work of this engine, you would need three million people working eight-hour shifts every day to do the work of this engine, which would take one ship at a speed of 24 knots across the oceans. Those people would need a, a town the size of Athens to sleep in, and they would eat 9 um, billion calories a day. So you'd need a fleet of bulk carriers to carry their food. Never mind, uh, 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 that gives you the scale of the thing. And 
Every ton of fuel which this engine burns produces 3.3 tons of carbon. That is the challenge we face. Where can we get so much concentrated energy without using carbon? That is, that is the challenge. Um, and let me put this into perspective. Um, at the moment, the shipping industry, on the left-hand side of this chart, you see the emissions of carbon by the shipping industry. And the red line shows the position to date. I took this from the 2014 study by IMO. And it shows you that today the shipping industry em um, emits about uh, 900 million tons of carbon. And if we continue to operate the merchant fleet at full speed, and if tr cargo trade grows by 3.2% per annum, then the blue line shows us that by 2050, we will be emitting 3 billion tons of carbon. But the, the target set by the IMO is not 3 billion tons of carbon. It is actually 470 million tons of cargo. That is shown by the red dot in this chart. And so the challenge ahead of us as technologists as economists, as ship owners, is to get that target down from 3 billion tonnes of carbon to 470 million tonnes. And to begin with, I thought that this was impossible. When I started looking at this last year, I thought, how can you possibly, when we are totally dependent on carbon, how can you possibly reduce the carbon footprint from 3 billion tonnes to 470 million tonnes when the technology we have is very mature. We have no replacement at, at this point in time for the diesel engine. But then I looked at it and, you know, we are... Pe people are, are capable of enormous ingenuity and we can, I believe that we can do this and we can do it by doing four things. The first thing we need to do is to reduce the amount of growth of, of cargo. Because I think some of the cargo that we carry by sea is only carried because shipping is so cheap that it's, you might as well take it. It doesn't cost much. And I think we have to think very hard about whether the uh, carbon footprint in future is justified. And the first step in that is that every person in the transport chain must be made fully aware of the carbon footprint of the cargo which they use, whether it's the food that you buy in the shops, whether it's the iron ore you bring in, maybe from Australia or, or Brazil. You must decide whether you are making the right decision. And fortunately, we have digital technology to help us to do that. It doesn't do it today, but it's available to do that. The second thing we need to do is to slow down the speed of operation. For many years, merchant ships traded at 10 knots. In the, in the 19th century, uh, steamships were mainly designed to trade at 10 knots. And I think if we return to a slower trading speed of 10 knots, that will be extremely helpful and take us a big way towards meeting this target. The third thing we must do is to develop zero carbon power sources, and the technologists are all working hard on this. 
we have hydrogen fuel cells and another number of other important steps which can help to do this, but not immediately. We have to deal with the short term and the long term. And then finally, um, we have to reorganize the business so that we are all more conscious and better managers and we manage the transport process better. And what, you say, what do you mean by managing it better? I, I mean something like Uber cabs manages cabs better. It uses digital technology to make sure that the cab that comes to pick you up from the restaurant is the one that's outside your restaurant, not a cab that drives from 10 miles away to your restaurant to pick you up. That is what I call better management, and that is where digital technology can be so important. And in fact, I believe digital technology can help us with this, and it is possible to meet the 50% challenge, and let me show you how. Um, this is the what will happen if we do nothing. Trade will expand and carbon emissions will expand to 3 billion tonnes by 2050. If we slow the fleet down, if, if we cut the growth of trade from 3.2% to 2.2%, we continue to grow because we need to grow. There are many nations that need more imports but if we can cut it to 2.2% of the most valuable cargo, then we will save 30% of the carbon. If we then slow the, the fleet down to, to, to 10 knots and we do 2.2% cargo growth, we can get down to 900 million tons of cargo, uh, of, of, of carbon. And the, the last part, then we must bring in the zero carbon ships, which I believe we can start to deliver by 2025 maybe, and a significant part of the fleet by 2050 will consist of zero carbon ships. And I think that, that is how we can get there. Um, and very briefly, since I'm now running out of time, but I, I will go through this um, very briefly. On the cargo side, I think it's terribly important that we bring the cargo owners into the equation. In my lifetime, I've seen cargo drifting away from the shipping industry. They've just left it to the ship owners. Uh, and having uh, been part of a major shipbroking company for the last 20 years, I am very convinced that ship owners pay a lot of attention to the cargo. If cargo gives a lead, then the ship owners will follow. And I think the responsibility is there with the big cargo owners, like Total sitting in front of me right here, they, they must be involved in these decisions. We can't just leave it to the ship owners. It has to include cargo as well. The, um, uh, the second um, uh, step, as I've mentioned here, is that we have to have a system for reducing the amount of unnecessary cargo carried by sea. I personally am very keen on carbon pricing. I do believe that that will work very well, but this is a hugely controversial topic, and it sounds a bit technical, and I shied away from it myself, but I would urge you to take an interest in the, the, in the whole question of carbon pricing. The, the fact that you maybe put a tax on bunker oil, uh, a big tax on bunker oil, I mean, how, how much are your grandchildren worth, and, and is that a way you can do it? You, many don't agree, and I know that I can see people in this hall that I know don't agree with this, but it's a debate we must have and must reach a conclusion on. Um, 
The second thing I think we, we must be looking at, and which was inspired by President Xi's initiative on the, the Belt and Road and reminding us of the ancient um, Silk Road within Asia, is that I think we have to focus not just on deep sea shipping, but on short sea shipping. I see Asia as the perfect maritime area. And what we need is to be, I'm, I have much time, but it's not an exact analogy, but we need to be running container ships in Asia, like Uber runs cabs or Grab runs cabs or however you do it. Quick, fast, business-to-business -business transport for all those towns around Asia is a very important goal for the future and can bring prosperity to outlying areas of uh, both Asia. And I'm talking to people around Europe about exactly the same thing in Europe. We need to bring in every part of the maritime world with good, cheap, carbon-efficient transport. And shipping is much more carbon-efficient than roads and railways. So wherever possible, we must use shipping. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is the ship and how we're going to do that. And, of course, the, um, the slow steaming is a very big issue. And I have w just one thing I want to, one thought I want to leave with you. Um, you may, many people think of slow steaming as something you only do in a recession. But this is not a, the right way to look at it. When you work out the cost of freight, you look at the cost of two raw materials that create freight. One of the raw materials is the ship, the cost of the, per day of the ship you use. And the other raw material is the cost per day of the bunkers that you use. And for most of the last 50 years, the cost of the ship was, as you can see in this chart, the cost of the ship is shown by the red line and the cost of the bunkers per day is shown by the blue bars. And for most of the last 30, 40, 50 years, the cost of the ship has been four times as high as the cost of the bunkers. That is no longer true. Today, the cost of the bunkers is actually higher than the cost of the ship. And that leads you to a different decision about how fast you should trade your ship. And today, in fact, every day, you should be looking at the correct, efficient speed, both in cost terms, and that coincides with, with emissions terms as well. And I think that this leads us to an economic conclusion that we should be trading our ships later. I've, I won't go through the calculations, but I've done them, and I truly believe that we're in a new era where the master on the bridge and the principal in the shipping office and the cargo owner on shore need to look much, much harder at the at most efficient economic speed, and I think 10 knots in future might become very desirable, especially if you put a big carbon tax on bunkers. Um, at the moment, we have, as you can see in this chart, a lot of what we call shadow, um, shadow surplus. We don't have any laid-up tonnage. We have 25% surplus, but that is all soaked up by the fact the fleet is trading at 12 knots. Is it trading at 12 knots because of the recession? not just because of the recession, it's trading at 12 knots because at today's bunker prices, 12 knots is a very efficient speed to go at. And if the bunker prices went up a bit more, 10 knots would become a very good speed. So we, we should allow the marketplace to take a look at this one. And I think that, that one of the very difficult topics that I find looking forward is when I, I took this off the model I use for modeling 
the, um, the cargo transport, and I hope you can see it all right, but um, we are faced with an era when we will have permanence in, in inverted commas shadow surplus because we will never, for the next 20 or 30 years, necessarily be trading the fleet at its full speed, not because we don't need the ships, but because a slower speed is more, is more cost efficient for the world economy because of the high cost of bunkers. Um, and finally, uh, the, the last topic, and I, 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 I am nearly finished now, I, I'm sorry to, um, to go on a little bit, but uh, I mean, being here in Shanghai at the heart of the world's biggest shipbuilding industry, I, it, I can't not mention the role of shipbuilders in this whole process. And, you know, if you look at, at the car industry, um, I, I, the cars today don't look much different from the cars 50 years ago. But if you take, the, as The Economist magazine described a modern BMW just a few months ago as, as a, a computer on wheels, and that is one thing you could not describe today's merchant ship as. You could not regard it as a computer on wheels. In fact, the, the ships haven't, the technology of the ships has not changed much in 30 years. And I think there is a challenge here that the shipbuilders, we need to move towards digitalization because uh, of systems on board ship. And on every ship, you have eight major sis onboard systems. And really, we, we need now to do for merchant ships the, digi the integrated digitalization of these systems, which car manufacturers have already done. And I, if, if you look at the way shipbuilding technology develops, it focused more on the production and productivity efficiency of zone outfitting in the shipyards. And to some extent, it neglected the integration of these systems. And I think this is the challenge that lies ahead, is the integration of these systems. But that's for another lecture. Um, I, I think the, 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 the propulsion plant issue is um, very important, and the shipyards must try to come up with zero carbon engines. I believe it's possible. I've spoken to all the major technology uh, manufacturers in this area. I think there's a good chance we might be delivering some sort of fuel cell-driven sh ships uh, by 2025. But I think the reality, the message here is, yes, we must develop fuel cell ships. But this chart, which I run off my model and shows you my projection of deliveries to 2050 by propulsion type. Um, and the, the message here is that um, the probability is for most of the next 30 years, um, we will be having to live with existing technology and therefore a major focus for shipbuilders and ship owners is to fine tune the existing ships and find ways to improve the carbon efficiency of the existing technology, which will play a big part. Whether that means using LNG fuel, whether it means uh, trading the ships more fuel efficiently. Uh, uh, there are many ways to do this. There's an enormous amount of new technology coming onto the market today that will make it possible to improve the efficiency of existing ships. And I would hope that financiers will pay great attention 
to the, the policies of the owners that they finance to ensure that they are moving down the track towards producing ships which are not only cheap but are future-proof, that will survive during this difficult period when we are going to be under regulatory pressure and environmental pressure. Um, so, I, of course, this will involve some reorganization, but I'm going to draw things to a close at the moment because I've gone on far too long. But uh, let, just to summarize, we are facing a period of unprecedented change. I know people say this, but really big changes r rarely happen. And there hasn't been a big change in shipping for 50 years. And I think we are on the brink of one now. And I would invite you to think about that. The goals are zero carbon and developing this sort of amazing d digital logistics that we've seen on land. We've seen it, we all experience it every day. We, need, we must do that in the shipping industry. It's, it's a priority. Uh, cargo interests, ship owners and shipbuilders must all play a part in this. But most importantly, ship owners, pay, they pay attention to financiers. Financiers have a big responsibility here in enabling this change, in guiding it, in directing it. And I believe that some of the architects of the future era for shipping are sitting right here in this room and I congratulate you on seeing the job done and so all I would say is um, it's a once in a lifetime challenge don't blow it thank you very much for your attention